You want to team up with the broker. You both have the exact same goal, getting the deal done. So the more that you guys can coordinate and figure out, okay, how do we need to get this thing done, the better. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome to the Web Equity Show. I'm your host, Justin Cook. I'm here with my co-host, Ace Chapman. Today, we are talking making offers and closing the deal. This is one of the most fun parts about actually getting the deal done. It can be a little scary, a little hairy, but we're going to be excited to be talking to you about this today. What's going on, Ace? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Right now, there are a lot of deals going on. That makes me a very happy boy. So I'm excited to jump into today's episode. Yeah, man. we got a ton of deals going on. We've got a ton of negotiations and offers being made on your side, on our side, with other clients. I'm sure you got other deals going too. So it's been really exciting, I'd say, a couple of months. You know, for this episode, we're really getting into the final stages of the deal now. You know, in the last episode, we talked about all the different types of deal structures. And, you know, that's kind of like arrows in your quiver. Those are bullet points you can use to make the offer. But today, we're going to talk about actually making that offer and how you can do things like turning their broker, the seller's broker, over to your side. And we're going to get into all this stuff today. Yeah, one of the toughest things is, you know, emotions are high when you get to this stage. And so having a game plan definitely helps out. We're going to walk through all that. All right, man, before we do that, let's get into the listener love section. We got a question from Lemuel. Had a question set out. Super pumped about this, guys. In the middle of closing an equity round of investment for a SaaS company, we're getting a very good multiple on the equity stake we're selling, around five times sales. Wow, Lem, five times sales. That's fantastic goes on to say, we have put in a great team in place since this past October, update the software and close some sales deals. It's a little more complicated than deals usually discussed in the podcast, but the principles still apply. Do you think you all could do an episode or two on minority investment? Thanks, Lim. Well, Lim, we're not doing episodes on these topics, but we will talk about this briefly at the top of the show. First off, I should say this is outside the scope of what we do in terms of minority investments, it's not really, I can't speak about that as a professional, like I can't give like a professional opinion on that. I can give you the Justin opinion. Ace can give you the, the Ace opinion based on our experience. Yeah, so I've done quite a bit of minority investing, especially with my clients, where we'll go out, we'll find a deal, and, and I'll invest alongside of them in the deal. And I've taken minority investing a lot of the deals that are in my portfolio right now. But when it comes to those types of things, it's more, it would have to be like 10 episodes. There's so much that goes into it. There's so many different ways to structure those deals that it's one of those things that you've got to figure out one by one. Each investor that you deal with is looking for something a little different, but it's a great, I mean, the deal that you've got, it sounds like that's a great start to be at five times sales. So that's the one thing I will say. <laughs> yeah, you, you did well there, right? You're getting a nice valuation there. But what I would say is that from the person taking on the investment, say you're taking on 20, 30%, and this is a lifestyle business, it's not a high growth, we're going to be like Facebook kind of business, right? Which SaaS can be, so I don't know the situation you're in. But let's say it's a lifestyle business, it's doing well, it's growing quickly, but not super stratosphere growth. It can be a bit of burden for the person taking on that investment if you're stuck paying out, let's say, 20 30% a month or a quarter to your investor, right? So it can limit, yes, you get that initial cash influx, but it can be a little rough on cash flow long term. It can stunt growth, I think. So there's you know a bit of an issue there. Unless you're using that money as the person taking on the investment, unless you're using that money for very high growth opportunities, if you're just kind of continuing to run your business day to day, I'm not sure that you're going to get a great return on that and your cash flow is hurt. There also needs to be a path toward an exit. If you're the person coming in with a minority investment, if it's a lifestyle business that you're investing in or it's a you know kind of moderate growth company, like there has to be some kind of plan to exit. Otherwise, you're never going to get your capital back. Like How do you get the money out of someone's kind of lifestyle business? It makes it really tough. It does. And if you're in a business that you feel like, hey, long term, this is a business that I just I want to have control of. I want to be able to decide what I want to do with it. 
even if they're minority, you don't want to take them on, you know, even if it's a great deal and, and all that. And, and so I've just seen where you end up with these very tough situations where somebody has control, but, you know, the other person isn't happy with what's going on in the business. And quite honestly, we've taken advantage of situations like that. We've got two partners in a deal. They raise some capital. That person, you know, they're both just absolutely annoyed with each other and they want to exit the deal as quickly as possible just so they don't have to deal or talk to that person anymore. And we come in and, and we get a great deal on those businesses. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can see how from your perspective, based on the buy side, when you run across those opportunities, there's real value, right? And it's something you can leverage. Yeah. What do you do? So I'll just mention this. I had a bullet point about this, that you should have an option in the contract for either party to walk while you're in the deal. So my question for you, Ace, is what do you do when you're in a deal with someone, let's say you're 20% or 15% or 30% or whatever, you're a minority or they're a minority, and it's just not going well. It's going horribly. And what of you wants out? Like, do you account for that from the get-go? Do you just deal with it when it comes up? How do you get out of those? That's actually a great question and, and a great point to make. So of a lot of the things that we do in these deals, one thing that helps from the very beginning is in the contract, basically having a buy sell clause. And what that does is make it extremely fair for both parties to be able to exit the deal. And the way it works is either party at any point can make an offer to buy the other person out. The kind of caveat to that is that whatever multiple or whatever valuation that you put on the deal when you make your offer to them to buy their equity, they can buy you at the same valuation. Yeah, I, Ace, I love that. I think that's really good advice. I've heard that before and used that before. Basically, whoever decides the deal, the other party gets to pick which side of the deal they agree with. Right. So if you want to buy them out or they want to buy you out, you can say, look, here's where I think the valuation is. Here's where I think the buyout should be. And the other person gets to pick, do they want to keep it or are they the ones buying them out? That is great when both parties are on board with that. When it's gotten to the point where the other person wants to screw you more than they want to get out of the deal or they want to work it out, like that can get, <laughs> that can get ugly. That's you're in a bad position there. One thing we did with the investor program on our end was we said, look, we want to you know, make sure people can get out too, is we put in a penalty. So if someone wants to get out, they pay a penalty and then the other investors would receive that penalty. They would get that penalty money and then they'd have the first option or first dibs on buying up their share, right? So they'd have the first, you know, first dibs to do it. And then other than that, we go outside and see if we can get that investor replaced. So they would pay a penalty. The other investors get the benefit of that person dropping out, and they also get first dibs at buying out that person's share. I love that. I really like that a lot, especially for a structure that's like the investor program. Yep. And then, you know, the other thing I think is really important when you're doing these minority investments is you need to be very, very clear about the roles and responsibilities going in. So, you know, I'm going to be a minority investor. The other party, right, the person that, that owns the business, expect something from me that I wasn't willing to do. I want to be a completely private investor and they're trying, they're like, oh, I thought you were going to do this once a month or I thought you were going to do this once a week or something, right? So there can be some lack of clarity. You need to really make sure that's clear. And I'm not talking these like long legalese contracts. I'm just saying written out, very clear on what kind of roles and responsibilities on both parties are. I've seen when deals like that happen and they're kind of like splitting up the responsibilities, you know, they didn't account for everything. And then the business kind of goes to crap because, you know, one party thinks the other party's handling this and the other party thinks they're handling that. And it gets just really messy because they didn't, you know, clearly define the roles early on. Yeah. And when <laughs> you get into the situation of the work going into the deal, that's where a lot of problems can occur. And one of the things we try to do in any deal where we may be raising capital or, or anything is, you know, when we... When I'm raising capital from investors on buying a deal, I expect to do all of the work. And, you know, I, I offer them as a benefit, hey, you can be involved where you want to. 
And, you know, a lot of times at the beginning, people are excited about something. And what typically happens is those first few months, they're like, oh, man, I'm excited to be in a deal. And it is an opportunity to learn and figure things out. And, you know, like, but they're willing to commit to everything. I want to help with the social media and this yeah. and that and write content. And then three months down the line, it's like, OK, I've got some other things that I'm excited about now. So it's I encourage people just to say when you're in a deal, somebody is going to take you know, basically all responsibility and try to delegate. But if it doesn't happen, they're going to take on that responsibility. You know, it's interesting, Ace. I mean, you're a solopreneur. I know you have people that work for you and work with you, but, and you have, you know, partners on deals and stuff. But, you know, Joe and I have a partnership, business partnership, where, you know, any of the business we get involved in, it's just split. 50-50, we're just, we're all involved in everything that each other does right now, right? And, you know, we've noticed that, especially early, years and years ago, there were times where the workload ebbs and flows, right? Where mm-hmm. I'm doing a whole lot more work, or it's, let's say it's more valuable work than he is, right? And it's stressful and frustrating for me. And the reverse is true too, where there are times where I'm just doing a lot less work or I'm just not as needed. And what he's doing is like really important. He has to do a ton of it. And, you know, it can be really frustrating in a business partnership where you're doing less work uh, or you're doing more work and the other person getting paid the same, has the same equity share, has the same equity stake, everything. That, that can be... Frustrating, but what we realized is that over time, those ebbs and flows just kind of go back and forth, and that's just the way it is. We've, I think we've come to terms with that, but it was harder early on in our business partnership, honestly. Yeah, I can imagine. All right. Well, anyway, Lim, I hope that was helpful. I hope you appreciate it. We're going to get into the meat of this episode now. All right, Ace, we're talking making offers and closing the deal, buddy. And this is something I know you love to do. You love the negotiation stuff. You love to get into you know deal making and how do you work it out? How do you make it happen? How do you make the offer? How do you counter? We're going to be talking about all that today to, to kind of like set the scene. Though I think we need to talk about their you know the process for making offers for kind of closing a deal. And there were there are three processes we're going to talk about. These are the ones you're going to see the most if you're kind of in this space. And you know it's going to vary quite a bit depending on which broker you're going with which party you're going with, whether this is a privately done deal. So we're going to talk about three things. The first is the letter of intent process, or they also call it an LOI process. Now, what this is, is basically a document you've signed. It's a non-binding offer that's made and agreed via written or signed LOI from the buyer to the seller. It's basically just kind of like setting up the offer. Here's what we plan to do. Here's the intent. Again, it's not binding. It's not saying, okay, the deal's done. It's just saying, look, I want to do this deal. And usually... An LOI comes with a certain amount of days of exclusivity. This might be 30 days, it might be 60 days, it might be 90 days. That's going to depend on the broker and kind of their process. But there's going to be a period of exclusivity where that buyer is the only one that can make offers, the only one that can have that communication, and it's like an exclusive period for them to do their due diligence and to make an offer. What do you guys like to see when it comes to you know giving that buyer a certain period of time? Can you talk a little bit about what a person should expect if they're dealing with a broker on, you know, they have that exclusivity? Yeah. So it really just depends on the broker, right? So sometimes they give 30 days, sometimes they give 60 days. And if another buyer steps in or sees the listing, a lot of times you'll see that it's marked as pending sale with the broker. So it just means that they're not going to put you in contact. They're not going to put other buyers in contact. They're not allowed to make offers or kind of begin, get in the negotiation process. I think this ultimately is protecting the buyer from other offers swooping in and taking a deal. And I think it's more important, I think, on very large deals. So you're doing a $2 million yeah. transaction. It's not like a $20,000 put on the credit card deal, right? I mean, it's much, much larger than that. And you're going to need like a longer period of due diligence. And you don't want someone else just swooping in and, and snatching it up while you're doing your due diligence when you've already made it clear that you want to do it at this price and the sellers effectively accepted that. Now, those deals change all the time. So an LOI that says, hey, I'm buying this at 1.3 million, you know, you may close the deal at 800,000. It may end up going for 1.6, right? So that's not a guarantee on what it's going to sell for, but it's at least someone, you know, putting it up and saying, look, I think we're going to do this. Now, you know, once the final offer is made, after this is after the deal due diligence is done and the offer is made, negotiated and accepted, the money is generally sent to escrow or it's sent to a lawyer or to a third party or sometimes the broker will actually hold the wire as well. So it's sent to either the broker, escrow, a lawyer, some other third party to start basically get into like the migration process. Yeah, it's interesting. 
as a buyer who's done stuff in the offline space, in the internet space, the LOI and having that protection is just a lot more crucial because you do have people that are just kind of popping along. They see the deal. They like the deal. They may be in the background doing a lot of research. And it's neat because you can find out a lot about a business with just a prospectus, just access to Google Analytics and figure out everything you want to know and not really be interacting much with the broker. So offline, really the only way you're finding out information about that business is through the broker, through the seller and asking a bunch of questions, requesting more info and all of that. So the broker knows and the seller knows exactly who's really interested, how far along in the process they are and who's not. When it comes to the Internet deals, you know, and a lot of people, I have clients that get frustrated by it because a lot of times a broker just has no idea. And one day, you know, it's like, oh, no, yeah, nobody's really interested. You know, talk to a few people. Doesn't seem like people are very interested. We don't have any offers. You have time. And then the next day they write and say, oh, somebody bought it last night. Yeah. So, I mean, LOI with online deals would protect you. So I'd see how, like, as a buyer... That would benefit you. That would be a, uh, something you dig. What do you not like about the LOI process? Well, the biggest downside when you're putting together the LOI is the fact that the seller thinks they have a done deal. Mm. And, you know, just like you said, you know, you can have a LOI that is for $1.3 million, But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just the LOI. It's the letter of intent. And all it's giving that buyer is the time to dig in and figure out what is the actual price that I need to buy this at? How do I need to structure this deal in order for it to be the right structure? And then you come back with the purchase agreement and that's the final agreement. So the the toughest thing is having that seller understand that and not be completely frustrated or upset When you come back as the buyer and say, well, you know, I need this to be lowered a little bit. I found this issue, that kind of thing. So, you know, basically having to go back to them and be the bad guy and say, look, in due diligence, there was this, this and this. Yeah, I didn't know this up front. This changed the deal. And then, you know, obviously you're going to have a seller that's like, what? You sent me this LOI. I thought it was 1.3 million, right? Yeah. Or you'll have the bad buyers, right, that will use an LOI and then totally lowball you in the exclusive period, right? So on a seller's perspective, it's bad. <laughs> a buyer can use it, but like it's not that's a great from the seller. So okay, so that's the letter of intent process. Quite a few other brokers use that. We'll talk about our process a bit at Empire Flippers. Uh, ours is a little bit different than most. We have buyers or depositors who actually pay a refundable good faith deposit is made and due diligence starts. So if someone wants all the details in the business, they pay a refundable deposit that's held by Empire Flippers and they can start the due diligence. Full price offers are accepted. The first to have the wire received by Empire Flippers gets the deal. So basically, we leave it open. Whoever wires the money, and we receive that money. So whoever Empire Flippers receives the money first gets the deal. If there's an offer that's made that's less than the list price, so if it's listed for, you know, say $300,000, someone makes an offer at $260,000, then that offer is sent to any depositors that are earlier than them. So if they're depositor three, We'll tell depositor two and number one that a $260,000 offer was made on this $300,000 deal. Do you want to beat it? Right? And if they beat it, then we don't tell depositor three, they just lose the deal. Right? Yeah. So if a full price offer is accepted uh, with no other buyers, the money's wired to Empire Flippers, and then the migration process begins. So we actually hold the money you know, between the two parties until the deal is done. I like that because you know we... We're not a third party. Like we understand how these deals work probably better than most. So we, I think, can provide a clearer path to like you know what is working, what's not, who did the right thing, who didn't, and we've got outlines that you know lay those terms out for both the buyer and seller. So ours is different. What do you like better about our process? Is my number one thing is you know the refundable good faith deposit. You know I think it protects the seller. It also protects the other buyers. You know, you don't want, especially with some of the more sensitive business models out there like FBA or but really just a lot of Internet businesses. You know, I've talked about this before. Finding that niche or that product that is profitable is a lot of the work. 
you know, a lot of the work that that seller has done. And the luck. Is, yeah. Huh? And the luck, right? It can be yeah. luck. like they, or not just luck, they tested 10 and this is exactly. the one that happened to work. Exactly. Exactly. So they, they go out there and that's what a lot of people don't know is that, man, it was 10 different projects to get to the work of that one. So to just go out and throw out that prospectus, like the protection of the, what that website is in their niche and their, or their product isn't valuable has always been one of my biggest concerns. And, yeah. and so the reasons as a, a buyer, like I just I really encourage people to work with Empire is because of that good faith deposit. So, yeah, with, with you guys, that's absolutely my favorite thing. A kid in his parents' basement can sign a digital signature for a non-compete non-disclosure, right? Like, you'd be 16 yeah, and, years and, old, and, sign and it, have, yeah, sure, I'm good, yeah, yeah. I'll sign it. Well, and not only that, but have a competing website up that night yeah. ready to go in the morning. These millennials, <laughs> man, these millennials, they could do that. That's what they're all about. So, yeah, so that's what you like about Empire Flippers. It's not all peachy keen on the Empire Flippers shop. What, what are some of the things you don't like about our process? The number one thing I don't like is getting outbid, Justin. <laughs> I know, man. I know. Don't let these people outbid me. <laughs> it's a weird. It's a weird uh, deal. Like you know, from our from thinking about this from a broker's perspective, like I want to get the deal done, right? And so, you know, if someone comes in and swoops in and does the deal before you, or steps ahead of you, or they were an early depositor, you know, I feel bad for you. Like it kind of sucks, yeah. but we got the deal done and we move on to the next one. Right. And maybe you should have acted sooner. And, you know, but I do understand how it's frustrating from a buyer's perspective, especially if it's happening to you more than once. Right. And you've done a bunch of deals, so it has happened to you more than once, but it's not all the time. Still, no. when you have, you're like, I really want this one. I got my client. We're good. And we got the wire from someone else first. Yeah, that sucks, man. <laughs> All right, let's talk Some pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about the private purchase process. In this, you know, there is less protection offered. This is effectively where you know a buyer comes along, finds the deal, or finds a site that they're interested in, contacts who does a who is search, finds a seller, let's say, and says, "Look, I want to buy your business," or it's a competitor or it's a customer of theirs that makes an offer in their business. An offer is made and negotiated between the buyer and seller directly. So there are no third parties stepping in to negotiate the deal. You're doing it directly with a seller. Again, there's no protection against outside offers. So if I make an offer of you know, 350,000 and the seller tells me, oh, I just sold to someone for you know, 380 or whatever, and you're like, oh my God, I would have paid 400. They can swoop in, of course, and do that. Or they can you know, obviously tell you there's a, a fake person out there trying to make this offer. So. You need know, to be aware of that. Once a deal is agreed, generally money or the wire is sent to escrow or an attorney. Most attorneys are licensed or bonded to you know hold up to X amount of money in escrow. I generally think lawyers are probably a better route to take than escrow services. I think escrow services are not really most of them. In fact, all of them that I know of aren't made specifically for websites and online businesses. Not that lawyers are, but I trust a, a, an attorney generally better than I would trust an escrow company. Either way. You definitely need to use a third party when you're doing a deal between a buyer and seller. You don't do the, hey, I'll pay you 50% up front, then you transfer me the domain, and then I'll pay you the other 20%. Don't like try to break it down like that because ultimately there's a point at which one party could screw the other right in that process. So even you know 30% or 50% or 60% done, you can get screwed in that process. It's a really bad idea. It's one of those we never do. Most brokers would never do this is allow either the buyer or seller to have, let's say, own the domain and have uh, any of the money. So no party gets to ever do that ever. It's really important. Yeah. And the other thing is don't even, it's not really worth doing a deposit on a private purchase. I actually had a past client that contacted me. They went through the program maybe a few years ago, did a couple of deals, and then they just did a recent deal. And it was on an offline business. So they found the business. They really didn't contact us to walk through the process because they you know, felt like, hey, we, I'll go in and figure it out. I got so it. Man. I don't need Ace. I got yeah, it. Yeah, I don't need Ace, man. So, you know, I've done two deals now. <laughs> so they, you know, negotiated, got everything done. And this business was kind of hurting, but he was going to go in and fix it up. So he makes a pretty large, you know, the guy told him, oh, well, we got other bidders that are enough. We need to take them off the market. I need you to make this large deposit. The guy makes the deposit. 
and you know, is trying to get some due diligence, doesn't hear from him. <laughs> and long story short, eventually goes by the business and everything is shut down and the guy has left the country. So, you know, you just even online or offline, got to use common sense. And, you know, on these private purchase deals, you want to make sure that neither person has all the leverage at any given point. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, we at Inverse, you know, we have the deposit process and we get asked that from skeptical potential buyers. These are probably people that would never do business with. They, they say, look, you know, how do I know I don't just send you this $6,000 deposit and you guys just close up shop or never get back to me or just take my money? And, you know, that totally makes sense in your situation, right? Where you're a buyer, a potential buyer, dealing with the seller directly and sending them a deposit. Who knows? They may be going out of business. They may be, may be a complete scam. Who knows? But we're like in the public eye. Like we're out there. If we were screwing people for deposits, we wouldn't be in business very long, right? Like if we were just taking people's <laughs> deposits, there'd be all these people. I mean, we do hundreds of deposits a month, several hundred deposits a month. If we were doing all those and not giving them back, people would be all over us on the internet. You know what I mean? So we've got a reputation to protect, whereas this random seller, offline seller, business seller, you know, they don't care. They'll just disappear, right? All right, so let's get into it, man. We've got 10 tips here we want to share with the listeners in terms of making offers, negotiating the deal. Now that we've talked about the three different processes, the LOI process, you know, the Empire Brokers process, and kind of the private purchase process, I think we can kind of get into this and it'll make a little more sense. So the first tip is, as a buyer, you want to find out what the seller really wants, right? They're going to have their kind of superficial reasons for selling, you know, I need the money for something else, or, you know, I, whatever. Like, there's something deeper to that generally, right? And it's kind of like, I describe it as like peeling back the onion. There are layers to kind of what they'll tell you and feel more comfortable with. Once you find out why they're really selling, when you find out that, and you're really going to get this far, but you find out that they need 60000 because they want to give 20000 to their brother who's about to get foreclosed on and they need 40000 to buy, you know, this new rental property. They need a deposit for that. Like you find out exactly what they need. So, you know, they need 60000 Maybe it's a $100,000 deal. They need that 60000 up front. You know that you can't go below it. So it gives you kind of an idea on what kind of deal structure you can work out. Yeah, I'm a very big fan of like specifics, getting specific on what they're looking for. And, you know, it does take a little bit of work. You know, it's pulling back the onion and getting to what they want. But it can help you tremendously in structuring the deal because just like that example, Justin, when you get not just even the rock bottom price, but the rock bottom amount of the upfront down payment, and you know some kind of time frame, because sometimes it may be that I can make that 60000 over the course of 90 days because I'm not going to really do anything for the next three months. But you can answer their true need then they can be flexible on everything else. So a lot of times people get focused on the total sales price and they're trying to lower their down payment and that person is saying no. But the real reason is because they would go down on the sales price as long as they could get that upfront amount. The other part of this when it comes to negotiating is getting the broker to work for you. And this is one of those kind of insider tricks that a lot of people go in and they see the broker as an adversarial kind of position. They're aligned with the seller. They're not aligned with me. And they treat them as such. So they go off and they kind of figure out their own thing. Yeah, like us, us, Ace, right? So let's say you're the buyer, right? And I'm the seller's agent. And let's say you're a newbie buyer. So you think that I'm necessarily representing the seller. I'm representing the seller's interests and I'm against you, right? So we're negotiating, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the true the bottom line is brokers want to get a deal done. That's their real job is that they get paid when the deal gets done. In order to get a deal done, you need not just a seller, but also a buyer. So they want to get the seller the best value. And again, a lot of times they're in tune with what that seller really wants. And so value is not just a sales price. And so you can get a lot of this information from the broker because they want to get the deal done. So they're going to help you figure out how do we need to get this thing closed in a way that it's a win-win for both parties. So if you go to a broker, you let them know that you're serious. You know, a big part of that is actually showing them that you have the money and you yeah. can actually close the deal. And then the other, the second part of that is saying, I love the deal. I want to do this deal. The only thing that's going to keep me from doing this deal is that there's something materially different 
And once I get into due diligence, then the information that you've given me. And no broker's gonna say, oh yeah, it's gonna be totally, you know what I mean? So they're gonna say, okay, great. Get into the deal, do the due diligence. And then you will do wanna stand up to that. We talked about due diligence and you know walking through that process. And the truth is, you know, when you're in there, you don't want to walk away from the deal unless you really do get in and it's something that is materially different. And that builds your reputation with the broker as well. Yeah, this is some insider baseball stuff. And I think it's an interesting perspective, right? So buyer or sellers, new brand new sellers might be interested to hear this too, is that, you know, in general, a lot of the interest for the broker and the seller aligned, but not everything. So I'll give you an example, you know, $500,000 deal is going through as the broker, as the seller's agent, right? Like we'd rather do the deal at 400,000 than not do the deal at all, right? Like we're only getting paid if we get the deal done, period. Now that's not necessarily in the seller's interest, right? They lose $100,000 in value on that deal, but we don't get paid at all if we don't do the deal. So if, for example, you come in and you say, look, I'm offering, let's say let's say buyer comes in and says, look, I got 450 cash. I got $450,000 cash. They show us, look, here's my, Investment account is my you know, cash account or whatever. I can do this deal. I want to close on this quickly. I'm a lock once everything's for sure good. Unless there's something material wrong, I'm going to do this deal. I'm asking for a reasonable discount. I want to get this deal done. I've already looked at it. This is something I really want. Let's get this deal done. And if all those things happen, you can actually turn the broker into your agent. So the seller's agent goes back to the seller and says, look, I've got this deal, a guy. I've worked with him before. He's awesome. I know he has the cash. Or I've got some of the cash, whatever. Like I've got, I can get this deal done. They're actually working for you. They're trying to sell the seller on getting the deal done. And so sometimes you'll have, you know, brokers that will turn around and end up working on behalf of the broker because they want to get the deal done more than they want to get the seller the most amount of money. And it's a bit of a conflict of interest, but it is something you can use to kind of leverage as a buyer and get them working for you. So anyway, good insider trick there. The third one we want to mention is that you need to be mindful of the seller's ego and feelings. Now, this is, sounds a little touchy-feely. I mean, we're, you know, this is a business transaction after all, but it's not a lot of time for the seller. I mean, it is a business transaction, but they put blood, sweat, and tears into this website or online business. And they may have built it from scratch when they were struggling to make their first dollar in this thing and their first customer. And now they got up to this like $400,000 deal or $800,000 deal or whatever. It's a big deal, quite possibly, if it's their first deal, the biggest business they've ever sold and if you're kicking the tires and you're pointing out like the dent in the hood like they're likely to take that personally right this isn't a used car you're buying this is like their blood sweat and tears so if you start beating them up too badly you can bruise the seller to the point that they're just pissed and don't really want to do business with you yeah it's such a crucial thing as much as we want to pretend like all this stuff that we're doing is just numbers and figures and businesses and all that, it really is an emotional thing. I've seen it over and over where we're getting to negotiating a deal. My client has a really great relationship with the seller and they just feel like, man, this is the person that I want to own my business and they can't afford to pay as much as this other guy that I feel like is an a-hole. But... I'm willing to take that lower offer because of that relationship. So taking into consideration their ego and their feelings, it may sound fluffy, but it gets deals done. Yeah, it saves deals from not getting done, right? By you attacking the seller about their business. So you say, if you're very factual and just kind of like talking about through the valuation methods we've discussed in previous episodes and the web, I can be sure I think that will help. We also kind of guide our sellers to understand as brokers, we guide ourselves to look, you know, and we'll buffer. Sometimes you get statements from buyers that are, aggressive and not so uh, understanding of the seller's kind of position. And we soften that blow a bit when we message the seller. So that's one of the things we, we do to help get the deal done, of course, as brokers. The fourth thing we want to talk about is to make sure as a buyer to consult your accountant or CPA about the tax benefits or lack of benefits before you get the deal done. I mean, it's not something you want to, you know, or you need to necessarily spend a ton of time on, but you definitely want to know kind of what you're getting to. And all the deals that we do, this is almost always an asset sale, not a stock sale. So as a buyer, you're not buying stock in a business. You're not taking over their liabilities. It's you know, primarily goodwill that you're purchasing. But it does make sense to look at how you're going to break down the line item value for each piece. How much is goodwill? You know, How much is the domain worth? How much is this worth? And you can do that and get some tax benefits. We, In some instances, you can actually point out to the seller 
why the tax benefits are better for them in doing this. Like, let's say it doesn't hurt you, but it helps the seller. And it can kind of like, that could be one of the pieces that gets you over the hump. Look, if we do it this way, you're going to get a better tax advantage. Talk to your CPA about it. We can work it out. And if anyone's wondering about this, you know, we did an episode interview with Mario, who's a CPA on season one of the Web Equity Show. And I have one with the Empire of podcast, too. I'm going to put links to those in the show notes for this episode so people can check it out. Yeah. I mean, it's good. You want to have these folks on your team. That episode in particular was a great episode. So I would definitely check that out. After that, you are you want to make sure when you look at your terms and especially when you're moving from LOI and you're getting into the actual purchase agreement, that you're clear about what those terms mean in doing the deal structuring. So when we and we talked a little bit in the deal structuring episode about this, but when we're structuring deals, sometimes it can get a little complicated especially if you're not very clear that, you know, you're doing an earn out and, you know, it's going to be this percentage above that amount, yeah. and this percentage below that amount. And it's going to have a cap at this time period or <laughs> this total sales price. And it just gets really, really crazy. So you want to be clear about that. Absolutely. Just you don't want to get stuck in contract hell and, you know, trying to make everything sound right in legal lease. You know, I like to have things written in plain English and then I like to have explanations and just make sure that everybody is clear as possible. And, you know, just recently we had a deal where somebody came back and they were asking a question where it's like we're, we were very clear about what the structure was and, and all that. And so, you know, I kind of resent them the contract. I explained in very clear language and that kind of thing. They came back and they're like, oh, no, I didn't mean to upset you. It's like, no, it's not about being upset. It's just about being very, very clear and, you know, reiterating. I don't want any misconceptions about uh, what the deal was. You know? Yeah, we were we were on that deal. I remember that. Yeah, that was yeah. interesting. Yeah, so we want to be clear. Yeah, I think, you know, the point about the contract hell is so true. I mean, definitely from my perspective, from the Berg's perspective, but from the buyer and seller too, you know, what happens is, you know, especially when they're new, it's like, okay, I want to get this purchase agreement in place. I want to get all the details ironed out in a legalese contract. That's the worst way to do it, right? Because it's, it's like you're sandwiching the details. The meat of the contract are the points of agreement or disagreement that you need to work out. So why not work that out in plain English first and then put that on there? Once everyone's agreed on that, then you can put that on the contract. It's fine. But if you're trying to do that in contract. So I have my contract. I send it to you. Your lawyer read inks it, sends it back to my lawyer. My lawyer is reading it. And they're just like battling back and forth. Lawyers are happy to do that all day. Right? They just sit there and get paid. Right, and we're paying them, and we can't come to terms on something that we should just do in writing an email and then hand to them, say, hey guys, make this happen. Yeah, that is so true. And sometimes we can make these a lot more complicated than they actually need to be. The other thing is you don't want to be coy or cagey in kind of like your approach, right? You don't want to mislead, maybe not even mislead, but like try to hide your true intentions. Mm. You, you just want to use clear language and transparency. In fact, as a buyer, if the seller is intentionally being vague or, you know, you, you see where they're kind of being misleading in the contract, it might be time to walk. And, you know, I've seen examples of this when it comes to, like, non-competes, right? So where the seller's like, uh, well, I want to limit it to this keyword. I won't compete on this <laughs> one keyword. Okay, so the other, the plural of that keyword, you're, yes, yes, I'm going to compete. No, not acceptable, <laughs> right? Like literally like that bad. And so that's, I mean, you just got to spell that out. So if the seller starts to be a little cagey. They're trying to lock it up in legalese. They're trying to, you know, not be as just direct to the point. You got to dig down a little further, peel back more of that onion. So a big part of that and all of this is how you respond to the seller. And, you know, every once in a while, these things can get heated. As a buyer, you know, I remind the folks in our network we're dealing with people that have built something from scratch. And so they're going to have a lot more emotions tied to it than you do. And so we want to be a little more understanding if the seller responds to something that we say with hostility. I've been cussed out by sellers before over an offer and, and that kind of thing and then still gotten the deal done later. Yeah. So, you know, it, how you respond is a lot more important 
than the seller. And, and, it, and it goes for the sellers as well. It's like, you know, the buyer is also putting maybe their life savings that they're emotionally tied to. So emotions can be high on both sides and you want to stay away from the hostility. Yeah, this moves into our sixth point, I think, which is that as a buyer, you want to make it clear to the seller that you're a good fit for the business. You're thinking, well, I'm just putting the money up. They're accepting my money. Why do I need to sell them on the fact that I'm going to be a good fit for the business? Shut up and take my money and don't worry about it, right? But that's not the way it works. I mean, a lot of sellers want to find a good home for their pet business, right? And it's not, they're not just being facetious. They're not just saying that. Like A lot of sellers actually believe it. It's not lip service. So if it comes down to, right, as a seller or us, you know, a handling form of we're brokers, and there is one buyer offering the same price, there's another buyer offering the same price, and one of those buyers seems like a better fit, has a better plan for building out that business or, you know, is going to be more successful, you know, the sellers don't want to sell to that person, right? So all other things being equal, if you look like a better fit for the business, they're probably going to work with you. Now, money talks, so we're talking about a 10, 15% difference in value that probably doesn't matter quite as much. But it does matter when the deals are when the offers are close, right? Yeah, it really does. I mean, <laughs> once you close that deal, everything really begins. You know, we feel like it begins when we're negotiating and all that, and then it ends at the closing. But that's just the beginning of your relationship with that seller. And so you want to make sure that it's a good fit with them as far as your working relationship for the next 90 days of training. The business is a good fit for you and you're going to be able to grow it and make it prosperous. Also, you know, it comes down to the fact that if you as a buyer are showing them that you've got a good plan to take over and run the business, there's some reassurance for them that they're not going to have to do a whole lot of handholding. So again, if I'm looking at the person that has a plan, has a plan of attack and they can run with it, they maybe a couple of calls and a little bit of turnover and they're good to go versus someone who's brand new is going to need more handholding. All other things being equal, I'm going to go with the person that has a plan in place and wants to take over the business. Now, you can't help the fact if you're new, but you can help the fact on whether you have a plan and you're sharing that plan with the seller and kind of like what you want to do and letting them know that you're going to take it and run with it. And, you know, again, this is one of those touchy-feely things, but I'm telling you, like, this does matter in these types of deals. And so, I think that's pretty important. The next point I want to get into is, and I think this is especially true with private deals, but that sometimes you as the buyer, this is our seventh point, you the buyer, you have to be the bearer of bad news, right? So if we work this deal out private, let's say it's a competitor, which is even worse, or you know, I'm a customer of theirs, I'm making an offer on their business, I've done due diligence, and I come and I make an offer, I have to be the one to tell them their business isn't worth nearly what they think it is. And you'd be surprised at what some sellers have in their heads. Some sellers think their business is worth a lot less, but in most cases, sellers think their business is worth a lot more because they're looking three years down the road and they want it to be worth today what it's worth in three years. And that's just not realistic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a, a big part of what you deal with, especially when you're dealing directly with the private sales And obviously what you guys deal with every day, dealing with uh, potential sellers. I mean, again, they feel like their business is amazing. They know how much potential it has and they want to sell that potential. And, you know, buyers don't want to buy potential. They want to buy what it's doing right now. Yeah, brokers generally have dealt with the sellers already and have already dealt with that elephant in the room, right? So we've already had to kind of you know, beat them up a bit on value and say, okay, here's what it's really worth, have the talk. And so they're, they're, they've agreed and they're open to selling at that price. So that's easy. But when you're doing a private deal, you got to be that bearer of bad news. So understand that you may be coming in and the seller may think your offer is offensive based on where they're sitting at, right? They'd be like, no way, my business is worth way more. And you have to kind of explain. The best way to do this, I think, is to be sympathetic to their situation, right? And like totally understand they put blood, sweat, and tears into this. But then revert back to the valuation reasoning that we've talked about in previous episodes. Say, okay, the business is worth this because if we look at your net profit over the last X months and we multiply that by this multiple, here's why I came with that multiple. We add on the inventory wholesale cost. This is is the valuation that we get. Now we can argue pieces of those. Which piece would you rather argue? But at least if you can put it in that framework, it's less, I'm worth more and you're belittling me by saying, you know, that you're giving me this offer. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that is. I mean, it has to be kind of an educational thing, not turn into a debate 
which turns into an argument. <laughs> you know, just like, hey, check out this resource and check out these deals that are similar that sold for that price. You know, if you put it on the market, that's probably what it's going to sell for. So, you know, it is reasonable what we're talking about. So it can't be an opinion debate between, nope, this is what I think it's worth. You know, I wouldn't pay more than this. And they're like, no, it's worth more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The eighth point I we're about to get into is when you see the deal stalling, you can rely on your broker. So there's a broker in the deal, rely on the broker. If there's not a broker, rely on a lawyer or potentially a third party, if at all possible. Now, if the deal looks like it's not getting anywhere, you're not going to be able to get the deal. For whatever reason, it's stalled because you can't come to terms on the earnout, or it just seems to get stuck somewhere. You can let someone else kind of step in that's involved in the deal, the broker or an attorney, and let them handle the back and forth between you and take some of the heat and the emotion out of it. My business partner, Joe, is, and it's funny knowing him personally, like we've been friends for a long time, but he's really good at this. He's really good at this, like, you know, de-escalation between buyers and sellers when things get heated or emotional and kind of like bringing it back to reality and getting both parties on board. He's really good, better than I could be, honestly. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I'll do that part of the business, but he's really good at it. He's really good. I've, I've watched his skills over the years just get better and better, and, and he's great uh -huh. at that. So I think that's a real value that you should rely on your broker to do. They should be offering that to you. If you don't have a broker, then obviously you can use your attorney that can step in. And don't have them go in there and muscle, right? They're not like you know stepping in as your attorney. They're an attorney that can help you facilitate the deal. So they may be nice to the other party just to get the deal done. The other part is, at the end of the day, it takes all three parties that are trying to make the deal happen. I mean, you know, we've been in deals, Justin, I've had other deals where me and the broker realized, well, actually, you go talk to them as the buyer directly and, rough, and you know, kind of smooth out the ruffle feathers. In other cases, we realize, you know what, the broker really needs. And so, you know, this goes back to our other point of, you want to team up with the broker, you both have the exact same goal, getting the deal done. So the more that you guys can coordinate and figure out, okay, how do we need to get this thing done, the better. Yep. Our uh, ninth point is that if you've been through several rounds of offers, so as the buyer, you made an offer, they countered, right? You made another offer, they countered. You made another offer, they countered. You keep going through this process. What you may have to consider is that the seller is one of those people that will just refuses to accept an offer that was your idea or that came from you. I'm sure you've seen this before, Ace, but they're just like, if you send them an offer, they say, no, here's my counter. They just want to counter for everything. So the deal gets so convoluted that if you know the seller will present like an earlier offer that was better uh, for the buyer and, and <laughs> just because just it's their offer. So a lot of times when you're dealing with someone like that, you just need to realize that the other party has this need to win. So let them. Let them guide them to making an offer that you won't refuse, right? That you refuse to refuse because it's a good deal. And let them win on something small. It may be, you know, just like it's, you know, well, you have to pay for hosting for the next couple of years or the domains coming up, you have to pay for that. Okay, done. What is that? A hundred bucks? Sure, let's do that. Or you have to pay for the shipping of the inventory. Okay, yep, I'll pay for shipping. It's 300 bucks. <laughs> Okay. The deals get hung up on this though. You know what I'm talking about. They do. Like on a $280 bill, you're going to, you know, break on a $120,000 deal. Like that is crazy talk. It's crazy talk. It's ego. Yeah. It's all emotion and ego. And so you don't want, even if the other person is coming from that place, you want to negotiate around it as opposed to getting into that back and forth. It's funny, Ace, and this is a quick aside, but man, this is some real shit right here. This is real, dude. Like, I yeah. know deals that you and I have been involved in just together on different sides of the aisle where things like this happen, right? And like <laughs> other deals we've done, I'm thinking of them in my head. I know specifically a deal recently, it was like uh, a few hundred dollars. And like Joe stepped in and said, look, I'm going to buy, like Joe was like, I'm going to buy you something. Let's just get this done. Is it okay, right? Yeah. Like, like Joe, like, in my response, like, here you go. Yeah. It's done. Let's just get this done, right? So yeah, it's so funny, man. If you can give up a concession to you that just aren't that important to you to get the deal done on the deal is important to you, just let them do it. Let them win those battles and you can win the war. All right, man, our last point, and this is our 10th point, is as a buyer, don't rely too heavily on contracts post-sale. 
I've done a you know, whole article on like my thoughts on contracts on Empire of the Birds blog. I'll link to that. I think it's pretty helpful. But you know, once the seller has been paid, you lose your leverage. So if you have all these things in the contract that the seller's going to do at this point or that point in the future, and you don't hold any leverage over them, there's no guarantee that they're going to do it. So if you have critically important things that need to happen post-sale, it's better to have a holdback. It's better to include that as part of the earnout contract because there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And the other question is, Ace, because there's no guarantee it's going to happen, are you really going to hold that seller accountable legally post-sale six months from now, nine months from now? What are you going to do about <laughs> that that Chinese national living in New Zealand or whatever? Like, What jurisdiction does this fall under for your $30,000 deal? It's probably not going to be the worth of lawyer fees, so you better have that cleared up and locked up before you even get to that point. Yeah, and, and this is why I'm a really big fan of just building relationships. At the end of the day, all this stuff, we're in a relationship business. If you're going out and you're buying and selling businesses, you're building relationships with brokers, you're building relationships with accountants, attorneys, sellers, and then the clients and customers of the businesses that you're buying. And so the better you get at building those relationships, the more profitable your deal making is going to be. That's right, man. So let's do a quick recap of this episode. I mean, we talked about the different processes you can use, and that's going to vary broker to broker. It's independent on whether you're doing a private deal or not. We talked about the letter of intent process and some of the advantages and disadvantages there. We talked about the empire flippers process, some of the advantages and disadvantages. We talked about you know, when you're doing a private purchase, some of the advantages and disadvantages there. We talked about our best tips on making offers. Again, find out what the seller really wants. Get the broker working for you by you know, showing your cash, showing that you're willing to do the deal asking for a discount and then having them go and sell the seller. The third point, you know, be mindful of the seller's egos and feelings. Uh, it's a little touchy-feely, but it's a real-world stuff. Fourth thing, consult your account or CPA about tax benefits, specifically look at the line items. Be super clear about the terms and the deal structuring. Don't get stuck in contract hail. Work out the details beforehand and then put it in the contract once it's worked out. Make it clear that you're a good fit for the business. Sell them on why you are a good buyer and you have a plan you're building it out and understand, you know, that if the seller responds with a touch of hostility, you know, it's, it's their baby, right? They're trying to sell their baby, be sympathetic, but revert back to your valuation reasoning that we've talked about. If the deal stalls, rely on a broker or a third party or some lawyer that can step in and kind of revive a stuck deal because heated emotions and egos got involved. Again, if you've been through several rounds of offers, give the seller a small win to help them close the deal, make them feel warm and fuzzy inside and kind of like, uh, you know, fix their bruised ego. But to the point, don't rely too heavily on contracts post-sale. Oftentimes, those contracts aren't going to save your butt if you need them to. What do you think, Ace? Is that a pretty good wrap? Yeah, this is a pretty awesome episode, man. People need to appreciate this value we're given. <laughs> Dude, I love it. I love, you know, I, this is a much better episode. I'm feeling better about the episode than I did when we started. I was like, okay, you know, deals and making offers. It's fun. But I don't know how good the episode is. I think it was one of the more valuable ones we've done. And I hope our yeah. listeners appreciate it. Our next episode is going to be about migrations, which sounds kind of boring, but I think we're going to have a little bit of fun with that one too. So it'll be you know talking about, you know, we've agreed on the deal, but is the deal really done? Not quite. We need to wrap it up. We're going to do that in the migrations, turnover, and transfer of the business. Thanks for listening to The Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com slash gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 